Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mimosa. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a Bloody Mary, and on this week's episode, we will be looking at the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, the BTK killer murdered 10 people. During this time, the murders went unsolved until narcissism caused this killer to be exposed after almost 20 years. However, before we get into that, let's go into some background on Raider. Dennis Lynn Raider was born on March 9, 1945 to Dorothea May Raider and William Elvin Raider in either Columbus, Kansas or Pittsburgh, Kansas. He grew up in Wichita, Kansas. Raider's parents worked long hours and paid little attention to their children at home. In interviews after his arrest, Raider described feeling ignored by his mother in particular and resenting her for it. From a young age, Raider harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing, quote-unquote, trapped and helpless women. He also exhibited zoo sadism by torturing, killing, and hanging small animals. Raider acted out sexual fetishes for voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing. He often spied on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothes, including women's underwear that he had stolen and masturbated with ropes and other bindings around his arms and neck. Years later, during his quote-unquote cooling-off periods between murders, Raider would take pictures of himself wearing women's clothes and a female mask while bound. He later admitted that he was pretending to be his victims as a part of a sexual fantasy. However, Raider kept his sexual proclivities well hidden, and he was widely regarded in his community as, quote, normal, polite, and well-mannered, end quote. Raider had attended Kansas Wesleyan University, but received mediocre grades and dropped out after one year. He served in the United States Air Force from 1966 to 1970. On discharge, he moved to Park City, where he worked in the meat department of an IGA supermarket, where his mother was a bookkeeper. Raider married Paula Dietz on May 22, 1971. They had two children, Carrie and Brian. He attended Butler County Community College in El Dorado and earned an associate's degree in electronics in 1973. He then enrolled at Wichita State University and graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor's of Science degree majoring in Administration of Justice. On January 15, 1974, four members of the Otero family were murdered in Wichita, Kansas. The victims were Joseph Otero, his wife Julie, and two of their children, Joseph Otero Jr. and Josephine. Raider wrote a letter that had been stashed inside an engineering book in the Wichita Public Library in October 1974, which described in detail the killing of the Otero family. Between the spring of 1974 and winter 1977, Raider killed three more women, Catherine Bright, Shirley Van Ralford, and Nancy Fox. 
In early 1978, he sent a letter to television station KAKE in Wichita claiming responsibility for the murders of the Oteros, Bright, Van Relford, and Fox. He suggested many possible names for himself, including the one that stuck, BTK. BTK stands for Bind, Torture, and Kill. He demanded media attention in his second letter, and it was finally announced that Wichita did indeed have a serial killer at large. A poem was enclosed titled, quote, Oh, Death to Nancy, end quote, a parody of the lyrics to the American folk song, Oh, Death. In the letter, he claimed to be driven to kill by, quote unquote, Factor X, which he characterized as a supernatural element that also motivated Jack the Ripper, the son of Sam, in the Hillside Strangler murder. Maureen Hedge was found on May 5th, 1985. Raider killed her on April 27th and took her dead body to his church, Christ Lutheran Church, where he was the president of the church council. There, he photographed her body in various bondage positions. Raider had previously stored black plastic sheets and other materials at the church in preparation for the murder and then later dumped the body in a remote ditch. He had called this plan, quote-unquote, Project Cookie. Dolores E. Davis was BTK's final victim. She was found on February 1st, 1991. It was later determined she was killed on January 19, 1986. Despite the media attention, BTK was not caught during this time. By 2004, the investigation of the BTK killer was considered a cold case. Dennis Rader would have likely gotten away with the BTK killing, but in 2004, he decided to send 11 communications to the media. In March 2004, the Wichita Eagle received a letter from someone using the name Bill Thomas Kilman. The author of the letter claimed that he had murdered Vicki Weggerly on September 16, 1986, and enclosed photographs of the crime scene and a photocopy of her driver's license, which had been stolen at the time of the murder. Before this, it had not been definitively established that Weggerly was killed by BTK. DNA collected under Weggerly's fingernails provided the police with previously unknown evidence. They then began DNA testing hundreds of men in an effort to find the serial killer. In January 2005, Raider attempted to leave a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot in Wichita, but the box was discarded by the truck's owner. It was later retrieved from the trash after Raider asked what had become of it in a later message. Surveillance tape of the parking lot from that date revealed a distant figure driving a black Jeep Cherokee, leaving the box in the pickup. In February 2005, more postcards were sent to KAKE, and another cereal box left at a rural location was found to contain another Bond doll. In his letters to police, Raider asked if his writings, if put on a floppy disk, could be traced or not. The police answered his question in a newspaper ad posted in the Wichita Eagle saying it would be safe to use the disk. On February 16, 2005, Raider sent a purple 1.44 megabyte Memberex floppy disk to Fox affiliate KSAS-TV in Wichita. Also enclosed were a letter, a gold-colored necklace with a large medallion, and a photocopy of the cover of Rules of Prey, a 1986 novel by John Stanford about a serial killer. Police found metadata 
embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document that was unknown to Raider still stored on the floppy disk. The metadata contained the words, quote, Christ Lutheran Church, end quote, and the document was marked as last modified by, quote unquote, Dennis. An internet search determined that a, quote unquote, Dennis Raider was president of the church council. When investigators drove by Raider's house, a black Jeep Cherokee, the type of vehicle seen in the Home Depot surveillance footage, was parked outside. This was strong circumstantial evidence against Raider, but they needed more direct evidence to detain him. Police obtained a warrant to test a pap smear taken from Raider's daughter at the Kansas State University Medical Clinic. DNA showed a quote-unquote familial match between the pap smear and the sample from Wegerly's fingernails. This indicated that the killer was closely related to Raider's daughter and combined with the other evidence was enough for police to arrest Raider. Raider was arrested while driving near his home in Park City shortly after noon on February 25, 2005. On February 28, 2005, Raider was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. On March 1st, Raider's bail was set at $10 million, and a public defender was appointed to represent him. On May 3rd, the judge entered not guilty pleas on Raider's behalf, as Raider did not speak at his arraignment. On June 27th, Raider changed his plea to guilty. He described all of his murders in detail and made no apologies. He was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years since Kansas had no death penalty at the time of the murders. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the BTK killer, Dennis Rader? It's disgusting, and it it just makes me mad the level of arrogance that he exhibited. And this is something we've talked a lot about with other serial killers like Ted Bundy. And, you know, they're not the only two, but there is often this arrogance and they want attention. They don't necessarily want to be caught, but they want people to know like, ha ha ha, I'm still out here and I'm smarter than the police and you'll never get me. And that is so infuriating to me. I was familiar with BTK beforehand, but I did learn a lot in this episode. I didn't know about in his cool down years uh, where he was taking pictures of himself and living out the fantasy of being one of his victims. I didn't know kind of like the little clues that he left for police, like leaving stuff in a book at the library and then leaving something in a pickup truck. And I thought it was really interesting the way they found him too with DNA from his daughter's pap smear. That's, I've never heard of anything like that before. And that was really crazy uh, to say the least that that's how they were able to catch him. And this all really makes me think too about, you know, a serial killer can be anybody. And the thought of like, you're married to someone, your dad is a serial killer, and you have no idea is so frightening. I know that his daughter, I think, has released a book on what it's like living as a serial killer's child. And she's had a hard time. She's faced some stigma. And I believe his fans, BTK's fans, have also sent her like threatening, harmful letters as well, which is not something I would really think that people would have to deal with, but is really disturbing and just heinous 
to say the least. What do you think? I agree with you. I think that although he may not have the numbers like some of the other serial killers that we've talked about on this podcast, he definitely has that level of just not caring about human life. The fact that he was just able to calmly describe his murders and didn't even attempt to show any remorse or apologize or just recognize what he did was wrong just shows the evilness that comes with someone like Dennis Rader and all other serial killers. I think that it's definitely interesting that this case was essentially solved by familial DNA. It's definitely a very controversial topic. And, you know, a lot of people are worried, oh, am I going to be a factor in convicting a distant family member or even someone fairly close to me because I volunteered my DNA or in this case, likely, you know, signed off on a form and didn't even know that their DNA could be used that way. It definitely makes you want to look at forms that you sign a bit closer just to make sure you're not giving up your rights or giving up your genetic material as easily. I think that it's interesting in this case how quiet he was for so long and then just randomly felt that he needed to get attention again and just seek that validation from the police and the media. I definitely do think that it likely would have remained unsolved case. And for the longest, you know, when you watch videos that said like, oh, the craziest unsolved cases, this case was always on there. But obviously, you never know the type of narcissism and hubris that a person has, even after they've gotten away with something for so long. The BTK killer is just one example of a cold case being solved after many years. Let's dive into cold cases, and a bit later, we're going to look at some other examples. A cold case is a crime or suspected crime that has not been fully resolved and is not the subject of a current criminal investigation, but for which new information could emerge from new witness testimony, re-examined archives, new or retained material evidence, or fresh activities of a suspect. New technological methods developed after the crime was committed can be used on the surviving evidence to analyze causes, often with the conclusive result. Typically, cold cases are violent and other major felony crimes, such as murder and rape, which, unlike unsolved minor crimes, are generally not subject to a statute of limitation. About 35% of cases are actually not cold at all. Some cases become instantly cold when a seemingly closed or soft case is reopened due to the discovery of new evidence pointing away from the original suspect. Other cases are cold when the crime is discovered well after the fact, for example, by the discovery of human remains. Some cases become classified cold cases when a case that had been originally ruled a accident or suicide is redesignated as murder when new evidence emerges. A case that goes to trial and does not result in a conviction can also be kept on the books pending new evidence. 
In some cases, a suspect often called a quote-unquote person of interest or a quote-unquote subject is identified early on, but no evidence definitively linking the subject to the crime is found at that time, and more often than not, the subject is not forthcoming with a confession. This often happens in cases where the subject has an alibi, alibi witness, or lack of forensic evidence. Eventually, the alibi is disproved. The witnesses recanted their statements or advances in forensics helped bring the subjects to justice. Sometimes a case is not solved, but forensic evidence helps to determine that the crimes are serial crimes. The BTK case and original Night Stalker cases are such examples. Sometimes a viable suspect has been overlooked or simply ignored due to then flimsy circumstantial evidence, the presence of a likelier subject who is later proven to be innocent, or a tendency of investigators to zero in on someone else to the exclusion of other possibilities, which goes back to the likelier suspect angle, known as quote-unquote tunnel vision. With the advent of and improvements to DNA testing and other forensics technologies, many cold cases are being reopened and prosecuted. Police departments are opening cold case units whose jobs are to re-examine cold case files. DNA evidence helps in such cases, but as in the case of fingerprints, it is of no value unless there is evidence on file to compare it to. The identity of Jack the Ripper is a notorious example of an outstanding cold case with numerous suggestions as to the identity of the serial killer. Similarly, the Zodiac Killer has been studied extensively for almost 50 years with numerous suspects discussed and debated. Before we go into the examples of other cold cases, I just want to get your thoughts on general on cold cases and them being solved years, sometimes decades later. I can't imagine what it feels like for a family to have their loved ones, murder, whatever, solved years later. And it really, I'm sure, gives hope to other people who are out there suffering and waiting. It's sad that anybody has to deal with it, but There are times, unfortunately, where the police do know who did it, but they just can't prove it with the right evidence, something that would stand up in trial. And then, you know, something happens years later, like these advancements that really are able to prove it. And I think that's wonderful to see. There are so many cold cases that I would love to see solved. I know we've talked before on an episode about what cases we would like to see and what information we could have. And it's good to see some police departments investing more in the cold cases. And it seems like almost weekly or every month or so, we're hearing about some kind of cold case that's either solved or someone is like a Jane or John Doe is identified somehow. And I think we're really moving in a good direction. I know there are some ethical issues with the familial DNA usage, which I'm sure we'll talk about in greater length on a different episode. But I think overall, we are moving in a good direction to be able to solve more cold cases. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. I mean, just at the end of 2022, we were able to find out the identity of the Summerton man and the lady of the dunes which were two cases that were unsolved for a very long time. And I think that's always a great thing. I think that 
the more technology gets advanced and the more that police are dedicating their time specifically to cold cases, the more that the families are going to be able to get justice. I definitely agree with you that it's such a hard thing to think about when it comes to the families and what they're dealing with not knowing what happened to their loved ones or worse yet, knowing what happened, but not being able to get the justice because like you said, the evidence is not there or, you know, it's a situation where the person for whatever reason is, you're not able to prosecute them. Like they're on the run or you're just missing that one piece of evidence, that one piece of matching DNA or fingerprints that can make sure that, not only you get a conviction, but that it's upheld and that you don't have a situation where the person is free on an appeal because, you know, something was faulty with the prosecution. So we are going to look at two other cold cases that were solved decades later. The first is the case of Catherine and Sheila Lyon. On March 25th, 1975, Catherine and Sheila Lyon walked to the mall to see the Easter exhibits. They left home between 11 a.m. and noon. Their mother had instructed them to return home by 4 p.m. When they had not arrived by 7 p.m., the police were called and an extensive search was conducted. Police were told by witnesses that the sisters were at the Wheaton Plaza Mall at approximately 1 p.m. A neighborhood boy who knew the sisters reported that he saw them together outside the Orange Bowl, speaking with an unidentified man about six feet tall, 50 to 60 years old, and wearing a brown suit. The man was carrying a briefcase with a tape recorder inside. There were also other children around who were speaking into a microphone he was holding. The witness's description of the man led authorities to view the unknown person as a prime suspect in the Lion Sisters case, and two composite sketches of the man were created. As weeks passed, numerous volunteer groups combed vacant lots and stream beds for the sisters. The search continued, and media attention reached such a fever pitch that on May 23, 1975, Maryland Lieutenant Governor Blair Lee ordered 122 National Guardsmen to participate in a search of a Montgomery County forest for the missing girls. Over the years, many detectives worked on the Lions Girls cold case. However, many have retired by 2013. Sergeant Chris Holmrock, after years of reviewing every detail of the case, ran across Lloyd Welch's statements. He had not read it previously. Critically, he also noticed that the mugshot of Welch roughly matched the police sketch created some 38 years earlier. From the details in the file, Hamrock thought that at minimum, Welch had witnessed the crime. Hamrock had also learned that Welch had since been convicted of child molestation. Detectives began working from this new angle and after doing background work, planned an interview strategy. On October 16, 2013, they had their first interview with Welch. They had feared that Welch would not speak with them. However, on the first day of the interview, Welch spoke with them for many hours. Throughout this long interrogation process, Welch inadvertently revealed the truths of the crime 
hidden in his elaborate frameworks of lies to Detective Dan Davis. In February 2014, Welch was openly named as a person of interest in the case. Police said Welch, who was 18 years old in 1975 and has since been convicted of rapes in three other states, had been, quote, seen paying attention to the sisters, end quote. Over a year later, in July 2015, Welch, then serving a lengthy sentence in Delaware on a child molestation conviction, was indicted on first-degree felony murder for his alleged involvement in the deaths of Catherine and Sheila Lyon. He was also charged with abduction with intent to defile. Ultimately, in September 2017, Welch pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder for the abduction and killing of Catherine and Sheila Lyon in 1975. He received two 48-year sentences for the two counts of first-degree felony murder he was facing. The sentences will be served concurrently. The location of any remains of the girls' bodies is still unknown. The next case we're going to look at is that of Atan Potts. On the morning of May 25, 1979, Atan left his Soho apartment at 113 Prince Street by himself for the first time, planning to walk two blocks to board a school bus at West Broadway and Prince Street. He was wearing a black, quote-unquote, future flight captain pilot cap, a blue corduroy jacket, blue jeans, and blue sneakers with fluorescent stripes. He never got on the bus. At school, his teachers noticed his absence, but did not report it to the principal. When he did not return home after school, his mother duly called the police. At first, the detectives considered the parents to be possible suspects, but quickly determined that they had no involvement. An intense search began that evening using nearly 100 police officers and a team of bloodhounds. The search continued for weeks. Neighbors and police canvassed the city and placed missing child posters featuring a tan's portrait, but this resulted in only a few leads. Assistant United States Attorney Stuart R. Grabois received the case in 1985 and identified Jose Antonio Ramos, a convicted child sexual abuser who had been a friend of Etan's former babysitters as the primary suspect. In 1982, multiple boys had accused Ramos of trying to lure them into a drain pipe in the area where Ramos was living. When police searched the drain pipe, they found photographs of Ramos and young boys who resembled Eaton. Grabois eventually found that Ramos had been in custody in Pennsylvania in connection with an unrelated child molestation case. Eaton's body was never found, and he was declared legally dead on June 19, 2001. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. officially reopened the case on May 25, 2010. On May 24, 2012, New York Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly announced that a man was in custody who had implicated himself in Atan's disappearance. A law enforcement official identified the man as 51-year-old Pedro Hernandez of Maple Shade, New Jersey, and said that Hernandez had confessed to strangling the child. At the time of Atan's disappearance, Hernandez was an 18-year-old convenience store worker in a neighborhood bodega. Hernandez said that he later threw Aten's remains into the garbage. Hernandez was charged with second-degree murder. According to a New York Times report from May 25, 2012, the police at the time had no physical evidence to corroborate his confession. 
In 2012, Jose Lopez, a man from New Jersey, reached out to investigators because he believed that Hernandez, Lopez's brother-in-law, was responsible for the disappearance. Statements by Hernandez's sister, Nina Hernandez, and Tomas Rivera, leader of a charismatic Christianity group at St. Anthony of Padua, a Roman Catholic church in Camden, New Jersey, indicated that Hernandez may have publicly confessed in the presence of fellow parishioners in the early 1980s to have murdered Eaton. According to Hernandez's sister, it was an, quote-unquote, open family secret that he had confessed in the church, end quote. A New York grand jury indicted Hernandez on November 14, 2012, on charges of second-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. His lawyer has stated that Hernandez was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, which includes hallucinations. The lawyer has also stated that Hernandez has a low intelligence quotient, or IQ, of around 70, and quote-unquote at the border of intellectual disability. On December 12, 2012, Hernandez pleaded not guilty to two counts of murder and one count of kidnapping in a New York court. The case resulted in a mistrial in May 2015 because of a hung jury that was deadlocked 11 against 1 for conviction. A retrial began on October 19, 2016 in the New York City court with jury deliberations in February 2017. On February 14, 2017, Hernandez was found guilty of kidnapping and felony murder. On April 18, 2017, Hernandez was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after serving at least 25 years. The extensive media attention attracted by the case of Potts' disappearance has been credited with increasing public awareness of the problem of child abductions. As a result, fewer parents are willing to allow their children to walk to school alone. Photos of missing children have been more widely distributed, for example, on milk cartons, and the concept of quote-unquote stranger danger has been promoted. Stranger danger is the idea that all adults not known to the child must be regarded as potential sources of danger. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these two solved cold cases? I actually didn't know either of these were solved, especially the Eitan Pats one, because that was pretty like high profile at the time. And his name does get brought up when you look into Johnny Gosh, because Johnny Gosh was also another example of a case of stranger danger and promoting safety with children. And especially because the man that committed this crime is from New Jersey. I definitely thought I would have heard more about it. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention at the time. But I'm glad that these families do have some sense of justice. I hope that as many of their relatives are alive as possible to feel this justice. It is sad, though, that we don't have the children's remains. But And it's sad, too, that at least in the case of the Lion Sisters, this man went on to then harm other children. And maybe that could have been stopped if he had been found in the first place. But yeah, overall, just happy that there is justice to these cases. What about you? I definitely agree. I think that cases like these give families hope that no matter how much time has passed between the kidnapping or murder or anything else with 
their family members, that there is always a chance that they're going to be able to get justice and figure out what happened to their family member and who was responsible for it. And the fact that in these cases, the perpetrator was still alive, so there was still the ability to be able to prosecute and ultimately jail these individuals. I think that sometimes with these cases, we see that the perpetrator has already passed or they might be in jail for another case. So it's definitely good to see that these people are going to be behind bars probably for the rest of their lives. Even in the case of Hernandez, he does have the possibility of parole, but I definitely don't see a parole board granting that to him, especially when you consider the fact that he had gotten away with the crime for so long and the fact that there was never a body found. So clearly there was a lack of care on his part when it came to the remains or just him not being willing to share that information with police to provide the family with the final closure in that case. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on Leopold and Loeb. As always, stay safe.